Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. I got to tell you about my newest sponsor for Cooper Talk, and it's a company called Blowfish for Hangovers. And what's great about this stuff is it's a lifesaver. After you're having a big night about drinking, partying, you can just wake up, drop two Blowfish tablets in water, and drink it. Super easy. And you know what? It tastes great. It's got a lemony flavor. It's nice. It's effervescent. And it's recognized by the FDA so you know it works. So here's what you got to do. You go to fourhangovers.com. That's right. Fourhangovers. F-O-R hangovers.com. And use a promo code COOPER to get 20% off your order. That's right. Just use my name and you get 20% off. So, or you can just go to CVS and look for it in the pain reliever aisles. Blowfish is there. So, if you hate being hungover, you got to go get yourself some Blowfish. So, go to the website, Cooper. I mean, go to hang, for, for hangovers.com. That's F-O-R hangovers.com. Put in Cooper and you're good to go. Anyway, we have a, we have a, we have a great show today. Uh, my guest, I, I found, uh, well, I became friends with Jimmy Starr on Twitter, who has a great radio show, him and his husband, Ron Russell. And I got a, I got a, basically a, a tweet that said my guest would be a great guest. And so when, when another host recommends a guest, you know what I got to do? I got to follow it up. So my guest is Stephen Manley. How you doing, Stephen? I'm good. How are you, Steve? I'm good. You know, it's, it's funny. I always do this, and it's just weird as, you know, as a fellow Steve, I'm a V, and you're a PH, and it's yes. always it's always weird. It's not like a rivalry, but it's so funny because I'm always like, "Hey, he's a PH." <laughs> right. Well, you can you can always say Stefan. You can throw a you can throw a European slant on it. Oh, it's a Stefan, or you could just say Stephen. I'm you know. Now, we'll be okay. We'll work it out. Yeah. What What's your middle name? Michael. Okay, because I'm Scott. I always want to find, and I don't care if it be a PH or a V. I always want to find another Stephen Scott because I think my mom. I always got mad about my name because my brother was Thomas Spencer Cooper the third, mm. and I'm Stephen Scott Cooper. So, <laughs> well, I I like Stephen Scott Cooper. Uh, Cooper, you know, the other one sounds a little bit royal. Uh, which might sound a little bit pretentious, you know, but I, I think that Stephen Scott Cooper, uh, Cooper is just fine. Now, uh, I got to talk to you. you, you you've had a, a very long and impressive acting career. You've been working, I mean, forever. How did you get into the acting business? I know it was a very young age. What was your What was your upbringing that guided you towards having a career where, you know, I looked at your resume, you've probably never had another job in your life besides acting, which to me is just so impressive. How did you get started? What got you on the path to being an actor and just keep it going? Well, uh, I'll start off that, uh, the answer to that, you know, Jimmy and Ron, great fellows. And they, you know, they kind of started off the same way. Oh my God, you're in all these shows that we used to watch, which was really, really cool. I mean, Jimmy was really kind of jumping up and down about that. And I thank them very much for sending me your way. Um, my grandfather uh, was from Italy. I'm adopted, uh, and my adopted mom, her dad, was from Italy. And it all starts with his story, Steve. He um, he ended up in New York when he was uh, about 12 or 13 years old, and they put him to work in a shoe factory, which he hated. And his older brother went and joined the Navy, and then his eldest brother, we don't know what happened to him. And when World War I broke out and he was 17 or 18 years old, they shipped him over to France. And when he got there, the war ended, so he never had to fight. <laughs> and they put him back on the ship and they sent him back to New York. And now he was an American citizen and he joined a circus. Okay. And he worked as an Italian clown in a circus. Uh, I'm not sure which circus it was. And I do know that one of his chores was to keep the lion cages clean. So he slept on top of the lion cages on the train when they would go from city to city. And he eventually landed in Los Angeles and he thought he would see real cowboys and real Indians. And instead he stepped off the train and he found D.W. Griffith casting the movie Intolerance, that great big silent film, you know, that's got the big Babylonian sets and stuff that has thousands of people all over it with those 30-foot big plaster elephants. You're probably aware of that that famous picture, you know? Right. And he, you know, he got cast as a Roman soldier for the Roman sequences in that. And I actually have 
a hand-tinted still picture of his costume test from that film to this day. And he stayed in the film business from 1917 all the way until uh, 1966 when he retired uh, as a stuntman. And he pops up in everything from Our Gang to Laurel and Hardy. You can catch him in the beginning of Frankenstein. You know, he was in Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly for a brief bit, getting drenched in the rain before Gene Kelly gave him the umbrella. You know, I mean, he's everywhere. He never became a huge star, but he was working all the time. He was just one of those character bit players that loved working. And he tried to get Stella, my mom, uh, to be an actress, but she was more interested in getting suntans, so she sort of <laughs> kind of let that go in the late 1940s. And after his wife passed away, he lived with us, and uh, it was just natural when I was growing up, you know, I remember as early as two, three, four years old, you know, I'd come around the corner and find him with his ancient makeup kit cracked open and he would be making a nose putty nose and showing me how they did makeups or prosthetics or make people into monsters. He had films, he had a projector and he would actually show a lot of stuff that he was in on films and of course he had thousands and thousands of pictures and he would explain to me the story behind every single one of them and then he began to teach me how to read. And he would start to teach me how to read by pulling these old film scripts off the shelf. <laughs> and, you know, I started to learn what a stage direction was and what dialogue was and all of these things. And when I turned five years old, he took me by the hand down to the Screen Actors Guild and he talked to a fellow there in Italian and I walked out with a Screen Actors Guild card, you know. I mean, you could do that back then. You couldn't do that now. And uh, an agent saw me. And she saw me on a talent show. Uh, it was called Juvenile Jury. It, it, uh, a gentleman named Gene Barry was the host of it. And it was kind of a little talent show that they would put on like at 7.30 in the evening. And talent agents would watch it and see what kid they thought was precocious enough that they could push in the film business. And a lady liked my look. You know, I was very European looking. I had deep set eyes. I always looked like a starving European war orphan. <laughs> and so she, yeah, so she picked me up, and that's what she started to send me on was all that kind of stuff. And so from the get-go, my grandfather instilled in me a really good work ethic. I found myself on these back lots or on these sound stages that I would recognize from the still pictures that he would show me, and there were enough there were enough old timers still around when I started in the early 70s that remembered my grandfather and they kept a good eye on me. Stuntmen, special effects guys, you know, camera people, all that kind of stuff. So that's how I got started. Well, you said you uh, it was a talent show. What was your talent? Was it just acting? I mean, how did they pick, you know, did you sing? Or, you know, when you, was it, did, how, what were you doing? It was, it was, there wasn't a, a sequence in there where you necessarily performed. What they did was they put a bunch of kids on like a, a panel, like a jury, and then they would ask them questions or they would put up pieces of pop culture and stuff like that. And then they'd get the kids together and they'd have little vignettes. I remember one in particular, they took one of the dogs from Lassie, right? One of the uh, ac doggy actors that played Lassie and the dog had to jump over the children. Big, big stunt, you know, uh, but we're talking early 70s variety show here, and uh, that's what it was. That's what it was. So I didn't have to sing. I didn't have to do something like that. I do remember auditioning to be on the talent show, and I remember doing a monologue uh, for it. So that's how I got onto the show, but when I was actually, when they were taping it, shooting it, you didn't really have to perform. I think they just put the kids up and asked them questions, and they kind of tested your intelligentsia for six years old or five years old. But the talent agents would watch this sometimes, and then they'd pluck somebody off of that show. So I was lucky I got plucked off the show. Well, I, I did, when I was reading something about you, you did the Art Linkletter show when you were eight months old. Is that true? 
You know, I don't remember that, but I, I do remember my parents talking to me about that. Now, I don't know what they did with me. I don't know <laughs> if I was in there with the bubbles at some point <laughs> that used to pop all over his, uh, his, his movie set. But I think they just wanted a baby, and somehow I fit the bill. For what it was, I don't know. But uh, I can't remember what happened on the Art Link Letter Show, and I've never seen that episode, so I have no idea. But no, yeah, as as a child actor, I mean, as you know, and, and Jimmy and, and Rana told you they saw a lot of your stuff. You, it was quite impressive. I mean, you you know, you were in Carol Burnett, you were in All in the Family. How did that happen? And, and did, were you at the time because you're so young? Did you know that at that time those shows were just legendary? I realized how legendary the shows are. I mean, look, nowadays people have so many t channels to choose from, and entertainment is at your fingertips. My God, you can watch it on your phone, on the computer, you know, uh, between cable and Netflix and Hulu. I, I mean, you have access to so many things, you know. For instance, we just watched Jaws because we watch it every 4th of July. It's kind of a, uh, you know, a tradition. Love to watch Jaws on the 4th of July because the shark eats the guy in the pond on the 4th of July. So we watch it on the 4th of July, right? But back then, when it was on, it was on. And that was it, you know? I mean, you had to wait a long time for a movie or, or a TV show episode to repeat or, or even come on to the television. People... It's hard for young people to realize there were only a few channels, you know. So the shows, if that show was on, like All in the Family or Carol Burnett or something like that, that was it was a big deal. So the shows really carried a lot of weight back then. And All in the Family was a groundbreaking show, Carol Burnett show. Everybody loved Carol Burnett. So it was re I really understood the importance of being on those even back then. It was like, wow, I get to be on All in the Family. And it was a pretty good role, you know. It was a large role, I think one of the larger roles for, for a young person on that at the time, right? Carol Burnett show was kind of a comedy vignette, but, you know, all of those big stars were on that TV show, so, you know, you recognized them when you saw them. So, yes, I did, I did understand that, and I, it did carry a lot of weight. Still does to me to this day. How do you, as a, as a, as a kid, you know, because you're a kid, and you're in all the family, and at the time, Carol O'Connor was, I believe, the highest paid uh, actor in, in the U.S., uh, TV-wise, and you also, as you said, it was everyone watched it because I remember watching it as a kid. We watched Saturday night, Saturday, you know, all the family had Carol Burnett. How as a kid is it for you to sit there? Were you nervous? Do you remember like you're on the set on a show that you know millions? And as I talk to actors, you know, who back when they talk about the old TV shows, like whatever, how many people watched it? It's like triple what people watch now what goes through your head as a, as a kid then like you're, you're a kid but you're going to be in front of millions uh, here's what happened <clears throat> I spent all my time with Grandpa Soldi you know I wasn't that I'm sorry to say not as close to my parents as I was to my grandfather you know the relationship was very much like you know Alfredo and the little boy in Cinema Paradiso you know <laughs> in, well that's I mean I'm sure you can relate to that Steve it was a it was a very close relationship so when I got all in the family he kind of gave me a briefing on how three camera or four camera live television worked so when I went into it and I got the job, I understood there would be rehearsals. I knew that we would be in like a rehearsal stage. Uh, and then you did it in front of a live audience, obviously. So I knew that in the back of my head. And to tell you the truth, because he gave me such confidence and because I wanted to make him proud and because I felt like I was doing what my grandfather used to do, I wasn't nervous about it. Now, I do remember when I, when I did All in the Family, that people said, oh my gosh, you know, Carol O'Connor isn't big on children on the show at the, at the time because, you know, some young people did get nervous or stressed or would forget a line or, or you know, basically you were doing a play live in front of people. Now, in that episode, I didn't have any lines. Uh, the storyline was there was an actress named Marsha Rod 
and she shows up, and Jean Stapleton opens the door, and Marsha Rod says, this is Mike's kid, and she pushes me through the door and splits. And so the whole rest of the show, they're trying to figure out just who I am, you know, who is sitting in Archie Bunker's chair eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and having a glass of milk. And at the end of the show, it's all resolved. She was going out for a job interview. She couldn't have her child with her, and she needed a safe place to ditch me, and she knew that the Bunker household was safe. Uh, but for a half hour, everybody's trying to figure out who I am and where he's been, you know. But there was a lot of reacting to do, and, um, you know, you had to hit your marks, and I couldn't just eat my peanut butter sandwich all over the set, you know, obviously. So it was a really good introduction to that kind of a, of a show. But I wasn't nervous, and Carol O'Connor treated me very, very well, and I remember after the show was over and everybody went out to take their bows, he came backstage and he talked to my mom, and he said, Stella, I need Steve, and she said, sure, and he took me out, uh, just the two of us, and we took a bow, and he, and he uh, brought me backstage. So he treated me very, very well. It was a great set, but I took it very, very seriously, you know. Now, after after that role, you go on a run of uh, some really great shows. Which, by the way, you were in. I know there's a great a ton of TV great shows you've been in, but you were in Kansas City Bomber, and I yeah. still I still remember that movie because there yeah. was a in Philadelphia there was a roller derby team. I forget yeah. what they were called, but I remember watching that movie. How did how did all the roles start coming to you? Did you have to audition or after like all the family because it was such a big show and you were. A big part of it. How did how did the roles start coming to you? I did. I did have to audition for everything, and uh, I, you know, again, Grandpa Soldi taught me how to audition, etc., etc., etc. And I tell you, it's really strange. Uh, back in the seven, back in the seventies, man, right? <laughs> in the seventies, you know, standing in these offices or at these studios, and you're six to eight years old. These children behaved like adults when they were going on auditions. It was really, really weird. You know, uh, you'd memorize your dialogue. You were prepared for an audition. Uh, but it was it was strange, you know, to have the children and their moms. But, you know, all these young people that I knew, they were very, very adult-minded. They were very, very adult in their thinking, you know. And they ha everybody seemed to handle themselves very mature when they went in on their auditions and everything, you know. So I had to audition. I had to be competitive against the other people. And I began to book roles. And, you know, the kind of stuff I began to book, you sort of saw what type I was. Again, my eyes were very deep set. I was very, very thin. And I looked like the artful dodger, you know, when I was a little kid. I looked like Jack Wilde, you know, and... Uh, if you put a bowl out with a piece of stale bread in it and I had to hold it, I probably would get that part, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I ended up dying in a lot of stuff, you know? I died of tuna fish poisoning. I had polio. I had rickets. I had speech impediments, wait, you wait, know? Wait, wait, did you just say you had rickets? Oh, yeah. I had rickets. I had polio. I, you know, I, I sold my sister to Bruce Boxleitner for a bar of chocolate in World War II once, you know. It's like they, whenever they needed a kid like that, I, I usually fit the bill uh, for it. But, again, everything was an audition, and you don't win them all, you know. Uh, you're not right for every single part, and you develop a little bit of a, of a thick skin. But my typical day was, because my dad wanted me to be in a public school. He thought that was really, really important for me socially and mentally and all that kind of thing. Um, I would get out of school, and if my mom had a smile on her face, it meant that I had an audition. And if she didn't, well, it meant I had to do my homework that night and try and get by in public school. So that's that's what my school life was like uh, in conjunction with auditions and everything. But, you know, that a lot of times there was a lot of pressure for these parts, for these roles. Uh, there were people that I knew who were very, very poor who survived off of the jobs that their kids got, you know. And sometimes, you know, uh, I know one young, young boy who got a lead in a feature film and basically saved his family from living in a VW bus back in the mid-70s, so we were all very, very happy for them. But it uh, it, it wasn't, um, how do I say it? 
you know, the craft and the art of it is fun. There's something magical about being on movie sets, especially back then when everything was done by hand. Uh, computer generation did not exist. So when they did Earthquake, they really built those buildings out of special effects foam and breakaway and everything else. And they had a lot of stuntmen out there, and they collapsed those buildings on them. You know, now a lot of that would be done in a computer. Um, it was It was a different period of time but it was a job I took it very very seriously and I wanted to make my grandfather proud of me and uh, be a good good guy on set and easy to work with and I learned from a lot an awful lot of great people both character actors and also crew people as well you know now as a kid and growing in the business is it something that you knew that you were doing it that this is what you wanted to do for your for your lifetime work I mean did you sit there and say this is great, or did you sit there like maybe like 14 or 15? Did you think, well, maybe I'll go a different route? I mean, what went through your mind because you had success at a young age? And so many of us as kids, you know, where I grew up, we, we would sit there and think, where were we going to go to college? But for yeah. you, you had success. And I mean, you look at your resume, some great projects. I mean, you know, and TV shows I loved. I mean, it's great. I, it's like I always love looking through IMDb, you know, The Love Boat and Little House on the Prairie, and just you know, it just goes on more and more, you know, TV movies. And what was going through your mind as a kid? Did you sit there and go, okay, this is something I'll do for now? Or did you know at a certain age, this is something that you were going to pursue for your life? I think I knew that I was going to pursue it for my life. I think it got ingrained and got into my blood uh, so quickly. And, you know, Grandpa Soldi kind of infused into me. Um, but it was really, really cool, you know. I mean, just the smell of that old grease paint in his makeup kit was just, it did something to you, man. Uh, the smell of the film stock, you know, uh, being on those sets, it, did, it kind of did something to me. There's so many art forms and so many art disciplines on a film set it takes so much to craft anything that there were artisans around you all the time you know whether they were makeup effects or whether they were costume or whether a guy was putting up a breakaway window or they were squirting fake blood and you know weather I mean everything in the world you know uh, so it, it was a great environment, and I just, I, I loved it. Of course, when I was a little boy, every kid wants to be a fireman, but that lasted for about a year or so, and then, and then kind of went away. By the way, uh, just to make you feel better, Raquel Welch was just as hot in person as you think she is. So I was on that set on Kansas City Bomber, and there was a line of men begging, begging <laughs> to get an autograph and a picture with her back then, you know? And she handled the crowd really, really well. They had to take a break, you know, during the during the filming of the scenes that we did. And she took pictures with an awful lot of people. And I remember there was an older crew member who came up and he had to set a mark and adjust a light and stuff like that. And he was probably in his mid to late 60s at the time. He could barely talk. And I remember him saying, I have to get close to you to take a light measurement. And she said, that's okay. And I just remember he was stuttering. Oh, my God, you're so, so, so be 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 beautiful. You, you, you really are. You know? <laughs> well, that's so funny because I remember my friend, uh, Brian Barr, they had in their basement, they had, she had that big poster where she was in like the caveman outfit. And oh, God. Everybody had that. I know, I know. That's just, that's such an iconic image, you know. And, and I feel like, uh, in one way, I feel great. I got to work with Raquel Welch. On the other hand, Steve, you're talking to the only male in the history of cinema who had to run away from Raquel Welch, right? <laughs> so, okay, so, so you're acting, you're intimate shows, and then, you know, eventually you, become on, you get on a series, Secret of Midland Heights. Yes. Now, what's it like when you have, are going from, you know, doing all these shows to getting on a series? Was it a was it cool because it was more of a family like atmosphere, or what was yes. that like when you got on a series and then when it ended, you know, it was ten episodes, I believe, and you're mm -hmm. still a young guy. What what goes through your mind when you're that age and this series? You, of course, we all think you want it to last forever. What was the whole atmosphere when you got on that show? Okay, uh, 
here's the story. You know, I had done episodic television for years. I had done a few feature films as well. Okay. Um, Grandpa Soldi died while I was making the Hindenburg, that film. I was on it for four months. He died on the last day uh, of shooting that. <clears throat> and I had seen other people, other friends of mine, get onto television series. Some of them were fortunate, and they went on for years. Others, you know... Uh, you'd shoot a pilot, and the pilot didn't get sold. And, of course, you were disappointed, but you began to audition again, trying to get more work. That's just the name of the game. And Secrets of Midland Heights was the second series that I did for a man who became a lifelong friend of mine. There was a writer named David Jacobs who had written a couple of children's books, and then he began to work as a staff writer, I believe, for Lorimar. So he'd write an episode of The Waltons or an episode of Family or an episode of Eight is Enough. And then one day he said, you know, I'm going to pitch an idea about an oil tycoon named J.R. Ewing and see if it sticks. And, of course, you know, we know what happened. His life changed forever. So David, uh, in 1978, wrote a small series called The Married Machine. And it was about two young people uh, one played by Cindy Grover and the other played by Lee McCloskey. And they were two lovers coming out of high school. They got married right away. She was from a rich family. He was from a poor one. And it was to see if their marriage would stick. And David wrote this pilot and they shot it as a two-hour TV movie. And the series got picked up for six episodes. And I got cast as Lee McCluskey's younger brother. I was 13 years old. And I was a sculptor in the show, and I worked with metal. But guess what? I had a speech impediment, so I had to stutter in this thing. So there you go. I had another ailment. I didn't have rickets, but I had a stutter. And uh, it was a, a beautiful show, and I was really disappointed when that didn't go. And so was David. He really loved that show. The characters were great. All the actors were really cool. You know, I got very close with Lee McCluskey, and he was poised for stardom at the time, you know. So I was very disappointed in, in that, that that didn't stick. But I ended up, you know, after that, doing some, some more episodic work. I guest starred on The Love Boat, which was really cool, you know. I got to ride on The Love Boat. got my first screen kiss with Nancy McKeon on The Love Boat. That was pretty cool. Damn. So I did a couple of things, and then David wrote The Secrets of Midland Heights, and as a gift, he just gave me one of the parts in that, because he liked me, and we got along, and he knew I was easy to work with, and I played a, the younger brother of, a, of another fella named Daniel Zippy, who played my older brother, and this one went for 10 episodes. So I did two series for David that didn't take off. His other two series took off for many, many years, you know, and, and sustained themselves. But, you know, David was really good with me, and he would say, look, you know, the series didn't go, but there's other work, there's always other jobs coming, and in the years since, you know, as a friend, in many ways, he said, Steve, in some ways you're better off, you got to do a lot of other things, whereas some of the actors on my shows, they got typecast, and they never really went into anything else. And you kind of became a character actor. You could do a lot of different things. He said, so it's just the way it worked out. It is difficult. The worst thing for an actor, right, is not having work. You know, you go nuts with it. And you have to learn how to manage that time and put your creative juices to use, either doing something else in between jobs or whatever. So that's always the big the big dilemma. But I had great people guiding me, and there were some times where it was difficult. But you get through it, and, you know, something else pops up. Sometimes something really, really cool. Now, now I mean, but we, so when that, when I got done, though, you must have been disappointed. I mean, because you're young, and you, you thought it would be, you know, this guy is such, uh, such uh, success down the road. It must have been for you. It must be disappointing for the fact that, you know, we're young, and we take disappointment harder. I think I learned to manage that. You know, Grandpa Soldi instilled that in me. David, who's a friend to this day, yeah, they instilled that in me. Sometimes they take off and sometimes they don't. And I watched some friends of mine in the 70s who were very popular on television shows and then the television shows or the feature film would end and they just went off the deep 
band, you know, and I didn't want to go there. So, so things would keep me occupied, right? Uh, when you're on the set uh, and you're a young person, you have to have three hours of schooling a day by a, by a studio teacher, by law. Sometimes that can drag until one or two o'clock in the morning if you're shooting all day right. long. Oh, you're doing your math at, at midnight thinking, oh my God, you know, I'd rather be doing something else. But a couple of my studio teachers knew that I was interested in special effects or I was interested in character makeup or I was interested in how they shot stuff. So to qualify for some of my like uh, manual arts, right, I couldn't take wood shop, but I'd go to the MGM special effects department and they would heat up the hot table and pour out a breakaway mirror, right? They'd show me how a mold was made, stuff like that. So I had other things that I became interested in that I would talk to professionals about and I would try and take a crack at too and one of them was sculpture you know makeup character makeup things like that and all those things stood me in good stead and they kept my mind occupied between jobs the interesting thing is say Midland Heights was a great show there was an episode in there that half of it revolved around my character's loss of his mom while he was on a scouting trip. You know, he came back from it, and the mom had passed away. So he couldn't de deal with it. And there was an episode in that that David wrote where my character finds his way to a carnival that, it, you know, the, the whole town's going to this local carnival and circus that came to town. And I didn't really care about it that much. And I ended up walking into a tent of a gypsy lady. And she very uh, kindly tries to help me deal with the loss of my mom. And I keep going back to this gypsy woman and trying to deal with it. And at the end, you know, everything's resolved. And she was being very kind. She wasn't trying to be mean. Well, guess who they chose to play the gypsy? They chose the beautiful actress, Zora Lampert, who had a Tony and had an Emmy. And she'd been on Broadway and, and all that stuff. And we had these scenes together for a week that were really, really heavy. And I worked with this wonderful woman on these scenes, and those are the scenes that Leonard Nimoy saw, and he wanted me to bring that to the table for Star Trek Three for the Ponfar sex ritual scenes with Robin Curtis on the Genesis planet. So though Midden Heights had ended, and yeah, everybody takes it very hard, you know, another director saw my work in that, and it par laid itself into another job for me so you know there you go now when when you sat there and you were approached to do you know to play young spock did you have any idea and i've had many people who have been on star trek on this show what in in a fan base what you were getting into because what i've heard about star trek fans are they adore the actors and then they also Watch everything else you've ever done. Yes, yes. When I went in for the audition, it wasn't so much an audition as it was just a straight-out meeting. And that had only happened maybe once or twice in my life, you know. And uh, Leonard had seen seen me in the Midland Heights. He, he enjoyed that episode. He knew Zora Lampert because he had done Broadway and theater. And uh, when he cast me in the role... After the second meeting, he said, I want to implore something to you, Steve. And I said, yes, uh, Mr. Nimoy. He said, Star Trek has treated me damn well in my life. He said, nobody would have really known who Leonard Nimoy was unless I had landed the role of Spock. He said, I had done theater, I've done features, I did TV for years and years. He said, but this is the role that made me famous. He said, I very much respect it. I honor the Star Trek fan base. I do conventions all the time. I read everything that I can about Star Trek. And let me tell you, he had books, magazines, fan magazines, newsletter, everything in his office. I mean, he had, you know, the latest edition of Starlog and Cinefantastique and all that stuff. And he really did keep up on all of that. So he took it very serious. And he implored upon me that I would, as playing him as a 17-year-old guy in the biggest chunk of all the young Spocks in that film, because he thought the Ponfar sequence was very important, he said, you're going to take it as seriously as me and, and honor me with that. I said, absolutely, I will, no question. So when he was comfortable 
with my attitude towards it that I would respect all of that. I think that was also a factor in his, you know, uh, inking the deal with me and and bringing me on board. And I've always honored that uh, ever since. Now, how did things change in you getting recognized? I mean, and just the the you must have got mail after you did that movie. Did you feel things change for you and you were more in the public eye because it is such a big fan base? Not necessarily because I had been receiving fan mail ever since All in the Family, right? Uh, so I got fan letters quite, quite a bit, you know, not overabundance, uh, but I did have quite a few fans who followed my career through the 70s into the early 80s. So Star Trek for me was just another one on top of that. It was great to be in a feature film like that. There were some guys who worked on that set that I had known for years, you know, who, who were there. So it was it was comforting, you know, to have a couple of stunt guys watching your back when fire was going to erupt out of the ground, you know, and uh, and things like that. So it didn't necessarily it didn't necessarily change. Something else changed for me at that point. I had graduated high school, and my manager at the time, who was the same lady who saw me on Juvenile Jury 15 years before, um, implored me to study acting more in depth. You know, she said, you'd grown up in the film business, you, you have studied with a couple of coaches, she said, but I think you should be a member of a theater group and do scene study work over at the Beverly Hills Playhouse, which was run by Milton Katselis, who had been a teacher over at the Actors Studio in New York, right? And so I graduated high school on a Friday, and Monday I started over at the Playhouse, and I, I took to it like a duck to water. I enjoyed it. I loved it. It was my first time, quote-unquote, going method, end quote. You know what I mean? Uh, I had heard about it. It scared me to death, but it really was something that came natural to me, and, and I'd actually kind of worked that way uh, growing up, you know, with, with other people, including Zora. That was a big, big, big moment uh, that sticks with me to this day, that whole experience of working with her. So when I was at the Playhouse, I was there for a couple of years. I had done Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, and my parents really wanted me to have a college experience. But my grades were so bad from growing up on film sets, you know, my, my schoolwork got kind of massacred. I wasn't as sharp and keen on it as Jodie Foster was. <laughs> she ended up at Yale, you know. She played my sister in the city bomber by the way and even at eight years old she was doing all her schoolwork in french i mean she was a brain man you know she really was and i you know i was more interested in fake blood and how things were shot i didn't care about my schoolwork but i ended up going to the art center college of design in pasadena california and getting into their art and film program and so i left the business for a while and i went on to study that and you know, it was kind of on Milton and Bill Howey, who was my coach at the Playhouse, their urging. They said, look, they said, you still look really young. You still look like you could play a war orphan. <laughs> you still look like you could have rickets, you know. But you're 18, 19, 20 years old. You, you're capable of doing some of these great things, but you don't look like you can be cast in this stuff. So why don't you go away for a while on sabbatical, right? And learn some other things and broaden your horizons. And then when you come back to things as an actor, you can bring the sum total of all your experiences to your work. Now, that was a great thing. It was really scary. I just didn't realize it would take a couple and a half decades <laughs> before I caught up with myself, then came back and started doing some more good work, right? Well, I was going to say, you know, when you when you went to the school and for design and arts and stuff like that, you, and I was going to say this earlier, you had such a, um, a great teaching in behind the scenes of film too because you said, you know, making the, the, the fake glass and all this stuff. I mean, you were working with pros as a kid that people would pay so much money to go to a school by these people so that must have just even though your books book study wasn't that great that whole that whole uh experience just must have made you so much streetwise and smarter about the biz yes it, it, it came in good stead uh, 
I, I took to my, my filmmaking studies uh, with a vengeance. I met some wonderful people. Uh, Brad Riggs, who cut the major fight scenes in the movie 300, uh, was one of my classmates, Nico Soltanakis. Steven? Yes. Uh, can you, did you back away? I, I lost some volume on you. How's this? Is this good? Yeah, I, I, I just lost some volume there. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, back on back on radar here. Yeah. Was... Uh, uh, I went to school with some great people. Uh, Brad Briggs, uh, who cut the major fight scenes in 300, and he became an editor for Terrence Malick, was one of my classmates. Uh, Nico Soltanakis, who produced Mirror Mirror and a lot of stuff for uh, Tarsim Singh, was also there. Zack Snyder was there. Michael Bay was also there trying to blow stuff up. I mean, <laughs> uh, there were some great people in my class, you know, and it was a very small group of people, and we all fed off each other. So it was a great experience. I made a couple of films of my own. One of them was a 25-minute short film. It was a drama uh, that ended up on the Bravo channel back when Bravo was actually a fine arts channel and they showed opera and they showed, you know, uh, classical musical performances and they, they showed uh, European art films, Bergman and Fellini and stuff like that. So it was a great experience uh, for me over there. And I was able to bring a lot of, of the things that I had grown up learning and put it into practice when I was making my own stuff. When you left, the, I mean, when you left the acting aspect of the business, when you're making your own stuff, what did you do for those years? I mean, I mean, how did you support yourself? Because it's, it's, you know, it's a different, you're used to constantly working and making money and being an actor. What did you do? And did you, did you start getting frustrated? And did you think that you would eventually get back like you are now working all the time? When, what, was there any times where you self-doubted a little bit? Oh, sure. I think, you know, I think that every artist goes through that, you know, they really do. I, I, I think especially, especially actors. But I saw all kinds of artists. Uh, I had friends at Art Center who were painters, guys who were in illustration, um, you know, and I saw them go through the same type of struggle, you know, that the, that the actors do too. Uh, I began to do some crew work. I started to do some art direction. Uh, I did some music videos, some short films, uh, a couple of features, stuff like that. Uh, that kept me going. The greatest job I had, I, you know, <clears throat> I had studied the makeup effects stuff, and everything was made out of sponge. So after I would sculpt something on a life cast, it would rot after it was used. And I kind of got frustrated with that. And I looked at the wax figures in the museums, and I thought, well, they're not rotting away. And I called Movie Land Wax Museum, which was the biggest wax museum in the United States for many, many years. It's now unfortunately shut its doors. And I talked to their sculptor, and the guy there worked for Rick Baker on American Werewolf in London, and he worked for Rob Bottin as a sculptor on The Thing. And, you know, he had originally trained in wax figures, and he invited me down to the workshop to see how the wax figures were made. And there struck a friendship with David Saliti that's lasted to this day. And he kind of tutored me in wax work on the weekends or, you know, uh, once in a while during the week. And eventually offered me a job as his assistant. And we made all the wax figures for the Peterson Auto Museum for the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles. And let me tell you, man, that was a cool job. And uh, it was a great experience. I really got hands-on with sculpture, how all kinds of sculpture was made, you know, everything from plaster to wax to bronzes to, you know, different plastics. And I, I, I really think that that was a great time. So I did a lot of different things. Now, I'm telling you, the first time I had to put on a waiter's apron, that was kind of a, <laughs> was kind of a dark day. But I worked for some great people. I worked for two restaurants for a while, and I can say, yeah, I did the actor thing, and I also waited tables, just like most actors have to do, and that was a really good experience. You because know, every time, yeah, every time you walked up to a table, it was basically an audition, you know what I mean? So uh, I, I took to that, but working for David was awesome, doing the art direction was great. And, uh, you know, working for my friend Rob Dutcher at his little restaurant in Pasadena called Catavino's, which is no longer there, that was a great experience, too. You get through it, you know? You get through it. 
And I did see light at the end of the tunnel. It just wasn't so clear when the light would come back. Yeah, so now when did you start getting back into acting? And as you said, you, you always, you, your roles were as like, like a waif. When did you start growing out of that where you sat there and went, okay, I can play different parts now? I mean, because I mean, when did you decide to come back and was there a certain role that brought you back? And was there a certain moment that you said, I'm going to really start pursuing the acting again? Because you had a lot of experiences, but yeah. in all in all, acting, you've been an actor all your life. So when did you start coming back? And I see on your IMDb, you're working a lot now. Was there a certain role? Did someone find you? Or did you just say, I got to get back to acting? I auditioned for a role uh, <clears throat> in a film called Death in the Desert. And it was a Michael Madsen film where it was loosely based on the life of Ted Binion, uh, the man who had uh, all these silver out in Pahrump, and he got involved with a, a dancer, and it's unclear how he died, whether he was killed, whether he overdosed, etc., etc. And they chose me to play his dope dealer in this. And I guess that my, my, my wafiness and my war-torn orphan and my rickets had healed <laughs> had kind of gone away, and uh, my face has got a lot more character in it now. I, I choke it up to mileage and fatigue and experience, but I guess you can call it character lines in my face. And uh, you know something? Uh, I went after this role. I studied, you know, with a couple of police officers that I know who were undercover narcs, and they gave me the, you know, the ins and outs of some of that stuff that I could bring to this part. And off kicked a whole string of mean, nasty bad guys that didn't really seem to stop for a few years. And I got some great parts, man. And I was really, really grateful uh, for it. So, again, I guess that Milton and Bill were right. And, uh, you know, you bring your life experience to your work. And I've been able to do that more now than ever before. What was it like with the, on the Michael Madsen uh, movie? when you were on the set after being away for a long time and you were playing, as you said, someone mean and nasty instead of life. When you when you stepped on the set, was it like riding a bike that it just came back to you? And what went through your mind? I mean, you must have been ecstatic because you've been away for a little bit, but this is your life work. You're an actor. What was it like when you hit that when you hit that set for the first time and did your first scene? Michael Madsen is a great fella. He, he's very uh, laconic in many ways. Uh, he works a certain way. I knew that he improved a lot in the scenes and stuff, so I was prepared for that, but I didn't realize exactly how much he improved and kind of went with it uh, for his scenes, you know, and I, I mean, I had worked with people who, who seemed to improv a lot uh, during my, my lifetime, and then I had certainly done a lot of that kind of dramatic improv work at the, at the, at the Playhouse, but I, I stepped onto the set, it was like riding a bicycle, it came back pretty quick, the scene was actually pretty involved, there was, there was the first scene that we shot was like a three-pager, <laughs> And so I was completely off book with it. And Michael Madsen came up to me and he said, uh, the first thing he said, he looked at my face and he said, Jesus, how are you doing, buddy? <laughs> I said, hi. I said, I'm playing uh, your dope dealer. I'm playing Cicero. He said, okay, we'll have fun with that. And he disappeared. And then I walked onto the set when they got it all blocked out. And uh, he said, who has the first line, Steve? I said, uh, you do, uh, uh, Michael. He said, oh, that's right. I say X, Y, Z. I said, yeah. And then they called action, and he came out with something that wasn't in the script that was totally left field, but kind of related to what was going on. And in that split second, I thought, I know exactly where he's going. And all of that training with my friends who were undercover knocks suddenly came into play. And if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have been prepared. And so the scene kind of became this one big three-page improv argument about what he's going to buy, how much he's going to pay. His girlfriend comes down and throws a fit. And I just had to follow his lead, and he had to follow mine. And it, it was a really good talk about a rebaptism by fire. But, I, you know, what could I do? I had to stay in character and stay in there with him and, uh, and, and play the scene out. So it was a great way to get started again. So there you go. 
that was my first step back. Now, with with the Star Trek and the Spock and the popularity of conventions, do you do conventions? Because it seems like something would be perfect to you. I saw on your Twitter you had you were mentioned in a, a sci-fi magazine. What was that magazine, and what was that write up about? Uh, there's been several. There's been several uh, lately. It's it's a, an enormous science fiction magazine. My goodness, I'm talking to you, and the name of it's flying out of the top of my head. What I'm seeing is the magazines that have come and gone, and they're not here anymore. Like Starlog and Cinefantastique and Cinefacts and stuff like that. It's sci-fi magazine. It's on my Twitter. The page is right there. I guess it's the biggest one that's that's out right now, so I was very honored to, to be in that. But yes, I do do conventions. Now, after I did Star Trek and I went to the art center, I couldn't do conventions. So I didn't do conventions for many years, and then it just, I thought that the time had passed so much that I didn't pursue it. And then my wife, 11 years ago, watched a documentary on Star Trek fans called Trekkies. And she said, oh my God, you've got to get to doing conventions. And so we called Creation Entertainment who handled the Star Trek conventions. And they got a hold of Robin Curtis who I had done those Ponfar scenes with. And she got on the phone with me and she said, God damn it, where have you been for the last 20 years? People have been asking me who I had sex with in that on that planet. You get your ass to that convention. And so... Uh, it was a little bit late, but I tell you what, people remembered who I was. It was many, many years later, and I found I had a whole bunch of nice fans out there. I've got several fan ladies who want to do the Ponfar sex finger ritual with me every time they come up to my table. And let me tell you, I do it with every single one of them. We always take a picture, and it's been a pleasure. I've got some great fans out there I really do and they've been very very nice people and then from doing the conventions it reacquainted me with some older character actors that I hadn't seen in years and I met some new ones that became really great friends so yes I do do conventions when I can well for a role like that because as I said for Star Trek it's so big and with the advent of social media when you were younger you were getting fan mail but but people had to actually take the time to sit down and write a letter but now it just must be amazing because I know you, I think I believe you have over 15,000 Twitter followers. Mm. It, it must be amazing that, you know, people can get you're more accessible now. People can yeah. sit there and they can tweet you. Do you do you try to be active on Twitter? And it is you're at Stephen Manley. Right. So it's people yeah. it's at S-T-E-P-H-E-N-M-A-N-L-E-Y. It's at Stephen Manley. Do you try to keep that social media up? and keep your fans happy because now they're just a a touch away. Yes, I do. I always try to accommodate everybody and you're always grateful. You know, you're always grateful. I've played some great roles. Some of the newer ones have developed their own fan base so they weren't aware of Star Trek and they found Star Trek after the fact. So, yes, uh, always, always. I mean, you're playing to an audience, you know. If nobody goes to see you, who cares, right? Uh, so you always want to have fans and people who come to look at your work. So you, you need an audience and you're grateful for them, you know? Uh, so yes, I, 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 do, I do do that as much as I possibly, as I possibly can. I'm, I'm looking at your IMDb. You have so much post-production, completed, shooting. What's coming up in the next few months for you? Okay, great. In the next few months... There is a web series called The Idiot, and it's loosely based on Dostoevsky's The Idiot. It's got a modern take on it with some surrealistic uh, slants. It's directed and written by a young man named Chris Chris Cranock, and that's Chris with a K. And uh, this is being pitched uh, to, uh, to Netflix uh, as we speak, so they're developing it to pitch to that, and there's talks with them, so we wish Chris the best with that. It's a very, very unique thing. The Idiot TV, you can actually see the webisodes uh, on there. There's a Fred Williamson film called Snow Black that's coming up for me to shoot in October. And it's directed by Robert Parham and produced by Tim Beale, uh, Mayhem Films. Uh, they're the production company uh, for that. 
And uh, Rogue Warrior Robot Fighter is a big sci-fi film directed by Neil Johnson. Uh, he's the first digital filmmaker 20 years ago. This is his biggest, most intense film yet. It's a beautiful movie. It stars Tracy Birdsall as the leading lady in that. It's also got William Kircher from The Hobbit and Daz Crawford from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It just premiered at the Action on Film Film Festival down in Los Angeles and actually got some awards. A week ago at the awards uh, ceremony, Tracy got a Best Actress Oscar and Neil got several Technical Achievement Awards for it. So we're really happy about that. So that will be coming out. And then I did a, a lead in a horror film called Ghost Hunters. And that came out last July, July 5th. And people, it's developing kind of a cult following. It's directed by Perry Teo, T-E-O. And Perry directed uh, The Gene Generation. And he produced Cloud Atlas with Tom Hanks. And it's got a great cast. Uh, Francesca Santoro, Liz Fenning, David O'Donnell, Phyllis Spielman. Uh, it's basically a gothic horror play is the way we thought about it. And it takes place in this beautiful beautiful, decrepit, haunted house uh, that was in the East Adams area of Los Angeles, a beautiful gingerbread Tudor house. So we had a wonderful stage to play this thing in, and it's a very wrought, heavy, it's uh, Asylum's first dramatic ghost story, and so everybody's very, very proud of that. So those are the things that are on the table that have just come out and things that are up and coming for me. You're a busy guy. That's good. See that? You, you disappeared. You came back. I mean, you, 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 you look changed. You're not a waif anymore. And now you got, you got roles coming everywhere. Hey, let me tell you. Well, I got, I got the role playing the head of the Hells Angels in the 1970s, okay? So I got to play George Christie. That was pretty cool. So when you've had rickets and you've had a speech impediment and you've had to sell your sister for chocolate... Playing a badass biker, that's pretty cool, you know? And uh, after that, uh, Kevin Costner was producing a show about Billy the Kid. It was a special TV movie for two hours. And I got the part as Charlie Baudry, you know, Billy's good friend that got gunned down. He was mistaken for Billy at the last minute. So, I'm, you know, I also got to ride across the plains of New Mexico and fight alongside Billy the Kid. You did, know, did you, I, did you meet some Hells Angels when you did that show? I, I have met a lot of bikers recently over the last couple of years, so I tried to role model what these guys have taught me, you know, and that was really, really cool. The, playing Billy the Kid's friend Charlie Baudry was a big one for me. I know a lot of gun guys in the industry, and I know some people who've, who've worked real closely with them, and uh, two guys were, were not feeling very well. They have since passed away. But they were just absolutely jazzed. They said, my God, Steve, you get to play Charlie. And so I had a lot of research and uh, uh, a pretty high bar to hit to do that. So that, that was an honor. That was a, God, that was a great part. Now, do you have any more conventions coming up in the near future? I sure hope so. I don't know of one coming up in the near future, but they do pop up. And, of course, Creation has the big one every year in Las Vegas, you know, over at the, uh, over at the Rio. But there's several ones that pop up here and there. So I try and do them as much as I can. But there's not one on the immediate horizon, but you never know. You know, I might open up the computer and a little starship will go by and say, you know, sci-fi convention coming. Hey. If it looks good, I'll, I'll join it and, and jump on there and, uh, and meet some more fans and make some people happy if I can. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, you're out there, you're working again, you're getting a lot of stuff done, and you're playing different parts, and you've had a great career, and it's really, you've arced, you know, you, and you keep arcing up, like you haven't hit that peak, so it's good. So I wish more luck to you for your, your roles coming up. Oh, thank you very much, and, and thank you for recognizing that, you know, it has been a journey, it has been an arc, I can finally say the child actor, you know, kind of grew up, and he's playing adult male uh, stuff, and that's what you want, you know, that's what you want, you want to keep going, and you want to keep creating, and you want to keep uh, doing these wonderful characters. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Steve, and this was a great interview. Um, People follow Stephen Manley at Stephen Manley, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-M-A-N-L-E-Y on Twitter. Also, people follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 550 episodes. You can also email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'll get back to you. Tell me who you want on my show. 
uh, iTunes, Stitcher, one more Cooper Talk, Instagram, Words with Friends, Cooper Talk One, do that. And also my other website, StopTheSalt.com. When I had that health problem, when I had my heart problem a few years ago, I got out, I wrote a cookbook. It's low sodium cooking for one, easy to read, 120 recipes. You can buy it on Barnes Noble, you can buy it at uh, Amazon, but get to StopTheSalt.com because I'll sign it and I make more money. And also, don't forget my uh, sponsor, Blowfish for Hangovers. Please go to their website, ForHangovers.com. Put in Cooper and you get 20% off. So go to IMDb. Check out Stephen Manley's work. Keep following me. Keep following me. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll be talking to you next week. Have a great weekend.